Matthew's Gospel answers the essential question facing humankind. That question is, who is Jesus? That is, in many ways, the focus of Matthew's Gospel. It was written mainly to a Jewish leadership to convince them that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And uh, today we're going to be looking at this evening... uh, Matthew chapter 11, those opening verses, uh, and some people see this as being a a particularly significant part of Matthew's gospel, a a change in direction, a change in emphasis. His theme, if you like, slightly uh, adjusts at this particular point. It can be argued that in the opening 10 chapters, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has told us who Jesus is. Uh, He has presented him as the Son of God, the God incarnate, the King, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, the Saviour of Israel and the Saviour of the world. Over and over again, he's reiterated to his leaders that that is who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. It's almost as if he's, as a barrister would do in a a court, has called witnesses to give testimony to the claims of, that Christ made, and especially to the fact that he is king, he is divine. If you could picture the court case and the witnesses being brought forward, you could argue that chapter 1, the testimony of history we see as the genealogy and the ancestry that points to Christ as the Messiah. Then the testimony, of course, of the virgin birth. Chapter 2, the testimony of fulfilled prophecy, that Christ fulfills Old Testament predictions in detail. Chapter 3, the testimony of the forerunner, John the Baptist, a prophet of God who spoke of one coming after him who is far more powerful, far more important than him. There's also the testimony of God the Father. This is my beloved son. Chapter 4, the testimony of Jesus' power as he defeats Satan. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, the testimony of his words. He spoke with authority, the truthfulness, the power of what he said, verifying his claims. Chapters 8 and 9, we see the testimony of his works, healing, calming a storm, casting out demons, raising the dead, forgiving sin, all of these testifying to his deity. And then chapter 10, in a way, we see the testimony of his disciples, so convinced that he was the Christ, that they were to be prepared, ultimately, to pay the dearest price of loyalty to him, death itself. So so Matthew has laid out the evidence that Jesus is the Christ. As he then pens the next few chapters, one thing that we perhaps can see in this is that he has a slightly different purpose in mind. Now he wants to speak about what the various responses there will be to Jesus. Responses to the gospel. In chapter 10, Matthew records Jesus' warning to his disciples about uh, how people would respond to the message. And now he starts to record some of those responses. Uh, Those who'd seen and heard all the evidence, how do they respond? What was their reaction to this? And he gives sort of these brief narrative accounts and he lists the various kinds of reactions to the claims of Christ. In chapter 13, if you go on, he records parables that Jesus gave to explain how these the actions were possible. The responses that happened in Jesus' day, of course, still happen today as well. We see them in our neighbours, in perhaps our work colleagues, and indeed in our families too. As we pick that up in Matthew 
chapter 11, I want to highlight the two responses that we see in Matthew chapter 11. We, we see one response uh, of doubt, and then we also see a response of unbelief, and we're going to deal with them each one in turn. And uh, now it may be the Asatla thinker, well, surely those two things are the same thing. Those two responses are exactly the same. The idea of well, doubt and unbelief, surely they are one and the same thing. There's no distinction between it. Can I strongly suggest that there is? And I'll perhaps define what I mean by doubt and, uh, and unbelief at the same time. You see, there's a fundamental difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a matter of the mind. Unbelief is a matter of the heart. Doubt is when we are struggling to understand what God is doing and why he is doing it. Unbelief is when we refuse to believe God's word and refuse to do what he tells us to do. Importantly, doubt comes from within belief, within faith. It's a wavering. Unbelief is a refusal to believe, a deliberate rejection of Jesus. And I'm going to explain that by looking at these two examples that are outlined in the passage. John the Baptist's response in this chapter, I'm going to argue, I'm going to suggest, is an interesting example of doubt. But the action of the people that Jesus refers to in verses 16 to 19 is a very sad example of unbelief. And we're going to consider the two, the actions in turn, uh, doubt first and then unbelief. I perhaps should say now that we're not going to spend an equal time on them, just in case a creeping sense of panic overcomes you 20 minutes or so into our message. We'll mainly look at the first one, uh, but then later on uh, we'll uh, briefly look at the second. So let's first of all look at the response of doubt that is outlined to us in verses 1 to 15 of Matthew chapter 11. Let's put the story into context, of course. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ, the one who announced his coming, the one who said, behold, the Lamb of God, the one who said, he must increase and I must decrease. John had already known Christ, already pointed to Christ, already baptized Christ. He had affirmed that he believed in Christ. John had been put in jail because he challenged the conduct of King Herod in marrying his sister-in-law Herodias. Following his imprisonment, John's disciples seemed to have been following Jesus around. Matthew 9 verse 14, Jesus calls Matthew to follow him and it's in that setting that we see the disciples of John come to him and ask uh, him a question. And then we have this incident. Uh, if you look at the equivalent passage in Luke's gospel, Luke 7, it We're told that it's the raising of the son of the widow of Nairn that provoked this question of John the Baptist. John's disciple obviously had experienced, had witnessed this miracle, reported it back to John in jail, and he sent them to ask Jesus whether he was the one, or more accurately perhaps translated, whether he's the coming one. What he meant was, was he the Messiah? Now, I am going to say that I am aware uh, that some of, and very, uh, very well-known and uh, highly respected uh, Bible teachers have taken the view that John here was, was doing this deliberately, that it was a clever strategy on his behalf to point his disciples to Jesus, that it wasn't, in a way, a, a genuine question. It was just a way of handing his disciples on uh, to him. 
Uh, now, I, I respect that view. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if you take that view, then I respect you for holding that view. But I don't personally agree with it, and I'm not alone in that either. Why? Well, partly because I think it's based on the premise that it's just not possible that a man of John the Baptist's stature would have doubts. And I hope we'll see later as I uh, expound this passage that perhaps it, it was certainly possible that even John the Baptist may have had doubts. But the, the second reason why I, I struggle really to, to follow that is Jesus' response to this. What did he say? He said, go and tell John. Go and tell John. Jesus' focus wasn't on, or like, have you seen? Have you observed? Jesus seems to be focused on, this needs to be ministered to John. Go and tell him. And that's why I take the plain meaning of the, the passage in a way, that John the Baptist himself had doubts. Now, I think that's important for us as Christians to, to accept and to, to understand that, that we all at times, suffer from doubts. It's easy to worry, isn't it, that it's only us. That everyone else has perfect assurance all of the time. There's something wrong with me. Well, take note. Jesus' cousin, his forerunner, the one who proclaimed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he had a wobble too. Unless we think that John the Baptist was some kind of weak believer, look at what verse 11 says. Jesus said, among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John the Baptist. The greatest man who ever lived up to this time had doubts. We should be comforted about our doubts too. We need God to graciously correct us, as we'll come on to see like Jesus did with John. But we should be comforted by leading this passage. Of course, it wasn't just John the Baptist, was it? Jesus' disciples had doubts. How many times did Jesus say to his disciples, oh, you of little faith, how long will you doubt? Quite extraordinarily, if you uh, look in Matthew 28, after the resurrection, we read that Jesus appeared to them. And verse 17 of Matthew 28, we read, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Even in that context, there was doubt. If you suffer from doubts occasionally, take heart, take comfort. Why did he doubt? Well, first thing to say is remember where he was. His suffering. He's in prison. Now that would be miserable for anyone. But this is John the Baptist. What's John the Baptist used to? Wide open spaces. Living in the wilderness, in the middle of the action, fearlessly uh, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. And now he's stuck in a dark, dingy prison. For a man like John the Baptist, that must have been awful. Awful for any of us, but for him especially. He'd been fulfilling his commission as a prophet. He'd been boldly preaching God's word to the people of his time. So why was God allowing him to go through this. And do you sympathize? Do you understand his thinking? I wonder if you ever thought the same yourself. I'm faithfully serving you, Lord, and you allow this to happen? Why? Or, Lord, if I'd compromised, my life would have been so much easier. But look at where they am now. 
Doubt can sometimes come from our inability to deal with trials and difficulties. When things don't seem to go our way, we, we question God's plan, perhaps. We maybe even question God's love. We're being a bit selfish, yeah. We're losing sight of the broader plan of God. And what do we do? Well, we begin to doubt. He was suffering. I think that's significant. But more than that, he's also clearly confused as well. In verse 2, John had heard about the works of Christ. And it was that that caused the question. Christ's works for John, the way he viewed things, were giving off mixed signals. On the one hand was his power. That certainly suggested that he's the Messiah. But otherwise he was confused because the works of Christ, the things that Christ was doing, didn't seem to parallel with perhaps the, the idea that John had of what the Messiah would do. Now we know in those particular days there was a lot of people who thought the Messiah was going to come and throw off Roman rule. And maybe something of that was still in John the Baptist. Maybe he was expecting a mighty warrior. And what was Jesus doing? Sort of walking around meekly and lowly it seemed. With not much going on that seemed to be changing the environment in that sense anyway. The wrongs were still wrong. The injustices were still there. Sin was everywhere still. It just wasn't the way that it was supposed to be in John's mind, perhaps. It's not an illogical response. There were others who had been proclaimed as the Messiah and had tried to be mighty warriors. Remember what John had been preaching. If you go back to Matthew 3, we see... John's words, what did he speak about? The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And there comes one after me who is mightier than I. His winnowing fan in his hand, he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What's John the Baptist preaching? Judgment. That's what he's been proclaiming. Can we understand how perhaps he struggles to, in his mind, equate Jesus with this little group of, uh, of other pathetic 12 characters, meekly, seemingly, meekly, wandering around Galilee, with his idea of the Messiah? I guess specifically, and if I'm struggling to convince you, uh, let me try with this one. Bearing in the mind the position John was in at the time, what would he have made of Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2? A messianic prophecy that says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release some darkness for the prisoners. What would John the Baptist make of that? And where is he? In prison. You'd be thinking, well, why has that not happened for me? Remember also, he was prevented from being with Jesus. The apostles, even his disciples, could watch Jesus, listen to him, experience him. No doubt he heard little snippets along the way of secondhand information, but you can imagine his frustration. He wasn't able to be with him. And of course, he didn't have what we have, the whole of Scripture. We, we understand, we can see how Jesus proclaimed for freedom from slavery to sin and Satan. How Jesus spending time with sinners 
and what others would view being the dregs of society was entirely appropriate for the Christ. But John didn't have that advantage that we have. So perhaps John's confusion was understandable. Maybe we're facing the same cause for doubt today. We're perplexed and confused by the plan of God. Maybe through our own circumstances. Maybe by what we see going on in the world around us. What is God doing? So what did John the Baptist do to address his doubts? Well, the answer is simple. He turned to Jesus. He turned to Jesus. Of course, he couldn't go himself. He's in prison, so he did the next best thing. He sent some of his disciples to see Jesus and a specific question for them to ask him. He didn't wallow in his doubts. He went to Jesus. Some would argue that John himself didn't believe, but that's not true. The fact that he sent to Jesus showed that he did. If he didn't believe, he wouldn't have asked the question. He was asking Jesus for the assurance. When we suffer like John when we struggle to understand how God is working in the world, doubts may come. Like John, our response needs to be to come to Jesus with our doubts and to come honestly before him. You may say, well, I can't say that in prayer. I can't express my my doubts. No. He's all-knowing. He knows anyway. Look at the Psalms. The brutal honesty of some of the words of the psalmist. Look at the book of Job and his questions. And like John, when we struggle with doubts, we need to come with Jesus. What did Jesus do? If you look at the passage, you you see Jesus' response. First of all, can I note two things that he didn't do? He didn't throw his hands up in horror. He didn't say, John, you of all people, you're my forerunner. You were there at my baptism. How can you doubt? He he didn't do that. He responds tenderly, graciously, mildly, correcting him. The second thing he didn't do was he didn't actually directly answer the question. He doesn't give a yes or no answer. Why? Well, because by answering it in the way that he did, he could teach far bigger lessons So what does he say? He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. And I think the significance in that. Saving faith is grounded on two things. The word of God. What you hear. Jesus' words are the word of God. Our faith is grounded in the word of God. He is faithful. He cannot lie. Our faith doesn't depend upon Our feelings, our emotions at set times, it depends on God. As we said in the children's message this morning, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word of God, what you hear, but then it's also based upon the work of Jesus, what you see. 
Now, Jesus specifically here cites messianic prophecies. There's a, a few passages in, in Isaiah that, the, that what he says comes from. Isaiah 29, verses 18 to 20, and Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6. And interestingly as well, Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2 that we mentioned earlier on. When he says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Each of those come from those passages in the Old Testament. And John the Baptist would have been aware of that. This shows John. He is the Messiah. He is fulfilling these prophecies. That's why he says, go and tell John what you see. What's also interesting, actually, is that each of those Old Testament passages that are referenced by Jesus are speaking about the judgment of God. Jesus, I think, is slipping a hint to John, saying, look, I've not forgotten judgment, but in my grace, I'm delaying it. Luke records the same incident we've already said. After they asked Luke, uh, after, after they asked the question, Luke records, in the same hour, he cured people, cast out evil spirits, gave sight to the blind. It, it's almost like this was done spe- specially for John. He says, like, tell him, John, tell John about this. And Jesus performed these miracles. He showed his awesome power. Almost as if it was just for John, who was struggling with doubt. And then he sends off the disciples to tell John what they'd seen. Now let's apply that to us today. How does this help us? Well, when we doubt, and we will at times... Remember that our salvation, remember that our faith is resting on the word of God and the work of Jesus. It's not dependent upon our emotions or our feelings at any one time. Remember how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Remember what he was able to do. His awesome power that Matthew uses to prove who Jesus is. Remember his words, words of tremendous authority. But ultimately, remember that he was obedient even unto death. Remember what he accomplished upon the cross, dying in your place, taking your sin and wrong upon himself. That is what your faith, my faith, is resting upon. As we go through the passage, we see Jesus commending John the Baptist to the people. Look at his words in verse 7 to 14. He says, people don't, didn't go into the desert to see someone who was fickle. In fact, actually, his preaching was fearless. Someone who was unstable or someone who was soft. They, they went to hear the prophet of God, Jesus says. The first prophet of God in four centuries. He'd been faithful in preaching God's message to the people of the time. He'd heard God's call, lived by faith, and fulfilled the call of God. His role in preparing the way for the Messiah made him great. Hence Jesus calling him more than a prophet. So you may say, well, how does this story end? How did John respond to this? Well, the answer is we we don't know. But I think we get a hint. If you look on in Matthew's Gospel to chapter 14, verse 12... John the Baptist has been beheaded. What do his disciples do? They go to Jesus. 
Well, I think that suggests that John had been very much satisfied with Jesus' response. Now, we mustn't pretend that we don't have our doubts from time to time. We must learn that when they come, like John, that we remember to bring them to Jesus. Be honest in our prayers. And we must remember that our faith is based on the word of God that is utterly dependable and upon the works of Jesus that showed that he's God and, of course, his ultimate work, that work upon the cross that makes it possible for us to know salvation. We see the response of doubt in John, but slightly more briefly, let's look on at the last few verses of the passage, verses 16 to 19, where Jesus highlights the unbelief of the generation to which he and his disciples were preaching. He, he compares them to, to immature, petulant children. Now, if you read the, uh, the commentaries, the, the books that have been written on this, the exact details of exactly what, uh, what picture has been presented here, that they disagree a little bit on, but the, the basic idea is, is pretty universally accepted. Uh, the idea, the picture is of children playing. One game is pretending to be at a wedding. A child on a flute playing for them to dance. But they don't want to play that game. They don't want to dance. So there's an alternative game. And that is to pretend to be at a funeral. Pretending to mourn. But the same children don't want to do that either. And Jesus is saying that that's exactly like the people of his day. You see, John was like the child playing the dirge, playing at the funeral. He fasted, he lived humbly, he preached repentance and judgment. People loved to hear him, but they wouldn't follow him. They even said he's possessed. Jesus, on the other hand, he ate and drank, drank normally. He spent time with those who didn't follow all the ceremonial rules. And what did they do with him? They accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. To put it in another way, they rejected John because he was an ascetic. He denied himself any material comforts. And they rejected Jesus because he wasn't. It's a, a, a you-can't-win type of situation. The meaning is as follows. People will find a way to reject the message of God. They don't want the truth. However, this being proclaimed. There was no logic or reasonableness to their position, Jesus is pointing out. The problem was, was they wanted to continue as they were. They wanted to continue with their preconceived religious norms, even though they were man-made and false. But the point is this, the ministries of John and the ministries of Jesus will ultimately be vindicated. As we close, can I challenge you, have you trusted Christ? Why not? Is it because you don't want to? Is it because you don't want to change your way of life? Deep down, you know there's something in this. But you just don't want the change. You're justifying to yourself or trying to justify to yourself why you're not going to act on it. 
The gospel is the truth. And that will be made clear someday. We said at the beginning that this passage falls at a junction in the book of Matthew, or one way of viewing the Matthew's gospel is, is to view it that way, linking the first ten chapters with the rest of the book. Actually, it's also a significant passage in linking the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, John was the last of the, uh, last of the prophets coming to the people under the covenant God had made to his people in Old Testament times. Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He was the culmination, if you like, of what we call the Old Covenant. Something greater was just around the corner. Jesus dying upon the cross was to be the means of sin being dealt with, the means of being right with God. No longer through the sacrifices of animals, the blood of beasts, was sacrificed to be seen to have been bought. It's now clear that it's through the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Jesus, being shed. Hence, verse 11, after talking about the greatness of John the Baptist, Jesus added, Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now that is not in any way denigrating John the Baptist. But it's pointing to the greatness of the privilege of being in the kingdom of God. Of knowing our sins paid for by Christ. Of understanding God's plan of salvation. Of having that personal relationship with Christ. It's immense privilege. Even John didn't have this understanding of God's detemptive plan. And even though we may have wobbles along the way, this privilege should move us to praise and thanksgiving. But it's also one that should result in a response of belief and faith. 